Hi everyone, welcome to Gender and Climate, Seneca. In this podcast, we talk about the nexus of gender and climate change and how people are affected. So, let's get started. Hi and welcome everyone, this is Annika. Today I'm going to be talking to Hui Mian Lim from Malaysia. She's an expert and independent consultant in gender, climate change and climate finance. Hi Hui, I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks Annika for inviting me for uh, joining your podcast here. Thank you so much. <laughs> You are warmly welcome. Uh, Hui, to start with, uh, where are you actually right now and where did you grow up? Okay, um, my, I'm an independent consultant. My area of interest is gender and climate change and climate finance. I'm active in the women and gender constituency of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, in short, UNFCCC. And I'm also part of the Climate Civil Society Organization's Observer Group of the Green Climate Fund, GCF. I come from a small coastal town in Malaysia, facing the South China Sea. Since it was a small town then, the only attraction are its seashores and the beaches that stretch along the coast from the south to north. When we were children, my siblings, cousins and I spent most of our weekends at the beach, swimming and digging pools on the seashore. With my schoolmates, we would climb rocks along the coast to another bay and have picnics there. So in short, my childhood was spent outdoor in nature. And I guess these wonderful childhood experiences had influenced me and caused me to love outdoor and nature until today. I'm trained in public health and uh, have been working in the area of sexual and reproductive health and rights for nearly two decades. It was when I started working on the interlinkages between women's sexual and reproductive health and rights and climate change in year 2016 that I found what I am truly passionate about, that is climate change. Climate change affects the environment and the lives of people who are dependent on the environment for their livelihoods. It also affects people who love nature and are sad to see what is happening to the environment. So perhaps um, I fall into the second category. And looking back, I can say that um, I have come a full circle to rediscover what I care for and love working on. So that's a short story about me yeah thank you um i i remember back then when i was in in malaysia and living in kuala lumpur um i was visiting some some tiny villages at the at the coast and um could be that i um visited your your hometown and i remember when i was there seeing the corals uh dying so um that was actually a a pretty bad a pretty bad um well few um and um we even though i'd love to talk with you about uh, kuala lumpur about malaysia about um the amazing nature malaysia has to offer um today we want to dive deeper into 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 one topic 
you're an expert in. You've already mentioned that you're an expert in sexual health and, well, lots of areas from gender and climate. But today we want to focus on climate finance. Um, could you could you probably tell us a little bit what is climate finance actually? Sure. I hope um, I, it is simple enough so that listeners could actually understand it um, because I try as much as possible to do a one-on-one uh, for everyone. First of all, okay. yes, um, I want to give an overview about what is a financial mechanism of the UNFCCC. It began in 1992 at Rio Earth Summit the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, was created, and so was the financial mechanism. The purpose of this financial mechanism is to provide climate finance in the form of grants or lower interest rate loans, including transfer of technology to countries that need it to address the impact of climate change. This actually means that the developed countries, the rich countries, who are members of the UNFCCC are to provide climate finance to developing countries who are also members of the UNFCCC to address the impact of climate change that uh, are experienced in their countries. This is actually based on the UNFCCC principle of common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities. In short, we call it CBDR-RC. The context is that developed countries in the West have contributed more to the greenhouse gas emissions compared to developing countries because these developed countries' industrialization happened much more earlier, many, many decades earlier than developing countries. It's also based on the concept polluter pays, where looking at the historical contribution of greenhouse gas emissions, it becomes a measure of responsibility for countries who emit more greenhouse gas to pay and to protect uh, the environment. So that's the concept. Mm -hmm. And under the financial mechanism of the UNFCCC, there are three operating entities. Maybe you have heard of it before. Uh, the first is a global environment facility. In short, we call it GEF. Then the Green Climate Fund, the GCF, and the Adaptation Fund. They are three of the four largest public multilateral climate funds available nowadays. I will just uh, give an overview of uh, what each uh, it's all about. So as of today, the GCF, Green Climate Fund, is the largest public multilateral climate fund available because it has the most money. It has raised about 17 billion and committed about 8 billion for 173 projects or maybe more now in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America and the Caribbean. As for the Global Environment Facility, Jeff, it has provided about 21 billion grants for about 5,000 projects to 170 countries. The Jeff also 
manages the least developed countries fund and the special climate change fund. Apart from that, the GEF also has a small grants program that supports about 25,000 CSOs and community initiatives in 133 countries. For Adaptation Fund, even though it was established in 2001, it only became an operating entity of the financial mechanism in 2019, a few years ago, after the decision at COP24. Adaptation Fund, which focused mainly on adaptation projects, has supported about 120 projects in 99 countries, contributed about 830 million to these projects. Each of the multilateral climate funds has a gender policy or a gender action plan. However, there's still room for improvement, especially to make the gender policy or action plan progressive and human rights based. These three climate funds also have official space for civil society participation. CSOs could attend as observers and provide interventions on policies, funding proposals, and accreditation via the CSO's representatives. So this is an overview about what um, financial mechanism and climate finance is about at the UN level. Hope that helps. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Um, but I think we already, like you've just talked about it a little bit and I think we, we just scratched at the, at the very surface and, um, and I think we, we already know that climate finance is actually a pretty, pretty complex, um, well, area. And um, so thank you for, for giving this very valuable overview. Um, you just mentioned that each of these funds have a, a, a gender, gender part. Um, why, why is climate finance especially important to, to address the nexus of climate change and gender? Why is, why is finance one of the, the key areas? So just now I was providing uh, listeners the macro level of uh, the climate finance feature. Now with your question, I'm gonna bring listeners to the micro level or country level and talk about why climate finance is important when it comes to the nexus between climate change and gender. And uh, what I'm gonna share is uh, mainly based in Asia because I'm based in Asia and I've done work based in Asia and uh, evidences um, from Asia. So I think okay. all of us know that um, evidence has shown that women and girls are more affected by climate change compared to men and boys. In Asia, most women and girls are already facing poverty and gender inequality even before this. And you add climate change into the picture, it actually makes the situation worse. And then since last year, we have the COVID pandemic. You add this component in, it makes things harder and tougher. So if you look at the situation today, it is actually very hard for most women and girls in Asia 
it's very tough for them. Let me just give a few examples mm -hmm. from Asia based on my previous publications. Yeah, please. Okay. Um, the first example is um, an indigenous people woman from a rural area in Lao PDR. She had a miscarriage because she was walking long distance to collect water for her family. Mm -hmm. So her area were, was experiencing unusually uh, long drought season due to climate change. And even though she was pregnant, she did not have access to healthcare services. Mm -hmm. Adding to that, in Asia, women have ascribed gender roles where you know it's the duty of women and girls to fetch water, to fetch fuel, to cook, to care for the family. Mm -hmm. So these, these are the gender roles. This is one example. Mm -hmm. The second example is um, women and girls also face sexual harassment and gender-based violence while carrying out their daily activities. As I've mentioned earlier, fetching water is one. Mm -hmm. Fetching firewood, looking for food is also uh, putting them at risk. Because when resources are limited, they will have to go further away mm -hmm. and often to unfamiliar areas to look for water, firewood, or food. Mm -hmm. And because of this, they also face exhaustion and risk bone injuries because they have to carry heavy pots of water. And also firewoods are not light. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. So a lot of risk. And um, third example, a 21-year-old woman in Bangladesh was encouraged to get married by her family after a flood period with the hope that it would secure her future. She got pregnant soon after being married, but miscarriage, miscarried because she was unable to access proper food and medical care due to poverty. In Asian countries, early or forced marriage is used as a strategy by poor families to reduce the economic burden in a family. When they marry off uh, their daughter or girls, then there's less mouth for mm -hmm. the head of the household to feed. So mm -hmm. they feed. One, one strategy, yeah. But most of the time when this happens, Girls or women who are involved will never benefit from it. Yeah, they, they suffer a lot. And uh, fourth example, uh, drought and flood will result in water being polluted. So you can't use uh, toilet and bathrooms that have no clean running water. And women and girls are smart. So what do they do? They adapt. They forego their daily hygiene practice because there's no clean water, you can't wash, right? And when it's during their menstruation time, it's more, more difficult and inconvenient when you don't have clean water to wash. Yes. And also because there's no clean water, they would actually refrain from drinking water to avoid going to the toilet during daytime. So then you have issues of urinary tract infections or even reproductive tract infections. Mm -hmm. So these are the examples of um, what, what happens. And uh, 
Yeah, and 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 how is finance addressing these issues? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to go into this part now. So <laughs> yeah, uh, those stories are in Asia, as I mentioned. But yeah. um, I believe you know women and girls in Africa and Latin America may also experience same situations. So it it may be you know um, happening elsewhere as well. And um, why is climate finance important in this context? It is important because climate finance should be used to address issues experienced by women and girls who suffer due to climate change. And the thing is, it is gonna get worse by the day because developed countries are still very slow in committing to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. You, you see this in the recent COP, you know. Um, yeah. In their commitment very slowly and reluctantly. So climate finance is especially needed for adaptation to solve the many issues experienced by women and girls. So let me give you an example. Well, what do I mean by um, that and how, how uh, it can be spent on? So it can be spent on building and strengthening healthcare systems, such as community clinics and hospitals, so that they can still function and not collapse during floods or storms. And also to make sure that these health facilities are still accessible to women and girls during climate emergency, which means you need to provide um, proper transport, transportation that are still working and roads that are still working for people to access from their village to the health clinics or to the hospital. So this is one example. The second example is climate finance can be used to improve water management system so that clean water will still be available during floods or drought. And this will ensure that women and girls will have access to clean water for their intake and also to for their hygiene practice. And at the same time, also invest in proper toilets and bathrooms that work during floods or even during uh, storms or even during typhoon. So build toilets and bathrooms that are also separated, which means you have a female bathrooms, female toilets, and um, male bathroom, male toilets, so that it is not shared. Because it's hard for Asian women to have this practice of sharing bathrooms and toilets with, with the men. And also the risk of uh, gender-based violence there. Yeah. Then uh, the third example, by providing households, especially the poor families, with clean cook stoves. So the best practice around nowadays are uh, the solar cook stove so that women and girls do not have to go look for firewood. This will reduce their time poverty. This will improve their health. And this will also prevent them from gender-based violence and also enable girls to actually go to school and not skip school because they have to go to fetch water or fetch uh, firewood. And uh, the last example is um, climate finance to help make sure 
Poor families are supported with food and other essentials during climate emergency so that everyone in the family will not go hungry, especially women and girls. Because in some culture in Asia, women and girls eat last. So whatever is left, that's what they have for their meals. When poor families are supported financially, girls are still able to go to school and they do not have to drop out from school to go to look for work to help support family. And also they will not be forced to get married so that the family will have one less mouth to feed. So this is very important. And I hope listeners will now have an idea of the connection between climate finance and gender and climate change. It's a very important connection because if there is gender responsive budgeting, but no finance to implement, nothing will be achieved or happen. And women and girls will still suffer continuously from the climate change impacts. Yeah, so that, that's uh, my response. Yeah, thank you, Hue, for for making these points. Um, it is it is absolutely crucial to to have that very very big picture uh, when thinking about uh, well climate change and gender and and we have to have the 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 knowledge of how gender and climate are connected to to bring the budget to in the finance to the women who are really uh, in need of. Um, but what actually are the, the main barriers faced by women in accessing climate finance? Because I can imagine there, there are some, some barriers why women can't really access it and why women are lacking some finances. Yep, that, that's, um, that's a very important question. And um, I think first of all, um, in general, even the existing financial system is male-dominated, designed by men for men. Therefore, it's not surprising, even the common layman financial system is not women-friendly and it's difficult for women to access, in particular women living in the rural areas in developing countries. We also have the problem of illiteracy and language barrier in addition to that, there's the problem of accessibility and availability of information on finance. Then you have the finance and banking jargons. Even I am not familiar with all. So, you know, imagine yeah. a, a woman from the rural area. Yeah. It's very scary. Very difficult, yeah. And the complicated process in even opening a savings account. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're going to get a loan, then you need a guarantor or collateral. Mm-hmm. So how many rural women, in particular, if we're talking about indigenous women, could do that or are qualified to even access the um, financial system that is existing? Mm-hmm. And just now I was talking about uh, collateral. Most women in Asia do not have the right to land or inheritance. Because by customary law, inheritance are passed on from one male family member or relatives to another male family members or relatives. So with no land title, 
no capital or money due to gender inequality, even in the family, the lack of women's human rights, women have nothing to fall back on during disaster or climate emergency. This has serious implications if the women are heads of households. This setback could pull them and their children deeper into poverty. So that's the context of our, of our financial system. And now coming to the climate finance, the application process becomes more complex. I'm gonna give one general example. The application process is submitted by a developing country affected by climate change or by an entity on behalf of the developing country. For example, a UN agency such as uh, probably UNDP to the climate finance body I've mentioned earlier, they submit to the JEF or GCF or adaptation fund. This application process will take about one year where a concept note has to be submitted then a funding proposal and a budget plus timeline submitted. It will be reviewed by GCF or JEF or Adaptation Fund. And the funding proposal will be revised a few times and then finalized and then tabled and then approved. Where are the grassroots women in the picture? They're represented. <laughs> yeah. So the representatives of the government of the developing country or the UN entity may probably invite some of these women to attend a briefing about the project that they will carry out in or near these women's villages. When they ask these women for feedback, these women will usually be silent because either it's not their custom to speak, normally it's men who do the talking, you know, at such mm -hmm. events, or they don't even understand the technical jargon used mm -hmm. or due to language barrier. And they feel intimidated by the presenters. They would say, I won't dare to say anything because they know so much, right? Yeah. So as a result, their voices are not heard. Their needs and issues due to climate change are not addressed or solved by the so-called climate action project that will be implemented in their locations. So most of the time, I find it rather ironic that climate finance is given to developing countries to implement adaptation projects, but these projects do not take into consideration what the women and girls in the community think, and neither do these projects address the issues faced by women and girls at the community levels. Some of these projects may have gender action plan, but again, Generally, these gender action plans are just a tick off the box and do not really address the issues faced by the women and girls at the community level. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the barrier, you know, it's eliminated, yeah. Yeah, and, and what could actually be uh, could could actually happen? Like, which rec recommendations would you give um, institutions to address these barriers? To not just have a tick at the at the gender document which has to be provided. Um, what 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 recommendations um, would you, having been working on that for years, um, give to these organizations, institutions, the UN, or whatever? Well, I think um, 
what I recommend here or propose here, it's not something new. I think it's been ongoing. I think the first and most important is um, the need for gendered solutions. We have heard of that, but you know, how much is it operationalized is another thing. Women and girls are no longer victims. They are agents of change and their roles as agents of change must be recognized. Women and girls are capable of coming up with solutions. This includes traditional and local knowledge and skills to address climate change issues and to build resilient communities. Women and girls should not only be beneficiaries of the climate projects, uh, which I mentioned earlier, implemented either by the government or UN agencies or private sector. Their participation and engagement, which includes free prior and informed consent and respecting women's human rights must be compulsory. This is lacking. I have also said this many times and it still needs to be said. It's time to shift from tokenism to allow active and meaningful participation of women in any climate action projects that claim to address women's needs and issues. And not just, you know, of the box, which we so often see. This means women being involved in the design and budgeting of the projects, implementation, monitoring, and evaluating the projects. Also, the gender action plan of each project must really address the issues of women and girls faced due to climate change. And there shouldn't be restrictions on what issues can be addressed and what issues they think um, uh, are not qualified to be addressed. Oftentimes, the findings in the gender assessment prior to the project is also not taken into consideration when developing the activities in the gender action plan. This really needs to be improved. So that's, that's the first recommendation. And I think um, it's sort of well-known and well-acknowledged. The second recommendation will be the need to provide climate finance directly to grassroots women organizations, local communities and the indigenous people. I've actually mentioned the Global Environment Facility, Jeff, which has a small grants program that funds CSOs and community initiatives. This small grants program should be scaled up and also should be implemented by the GC, uh, Green Climate Fund and the Adaptation Fund. So that money goes to the local community directly without going through the central government, the local government, you know. And when it comes to application process, it must be simplified and not have like, you know, hundred, hundreds pages of proposal. The processing duration shortened. Definitely it can't be a one year application process. And there's a women-friendly help desk or hotline to support this, whoever wants to apply, you know, for the grassroots. Ideally, the applications could be submitted in the local languages of the communities. This is very badly needed, but uh, there's always been lots of excuses by uh, international entities saying um, this can't be done. I think, you know, someone should try this out. And priority of this program 
should be given to grassroots proposals that are gender responsive, that are committed to active and meaningful participation of women throughout the project, and most importantly, to address all issues faced by women and girls due to climate change and not say, oh, I think this is a development issue, uh, not a climate change issue, therefore we cannot address it. Uh, I think um, that is something um, needs to be stopped and it should address all issues faced by women and girls who are impacted by climate change. And um, my third recommendation is actually an expansion from the second recommendation. I also hope that more private foundations and philanthropies would provide grants to grassroots women organizations, local communities and the indigenous peoples to address the issues faced by them due to climate change. Because I believe that their SOPs for application are generally very, very less complicated compared to what GCF, GEF and Adaptation Fund has. Though these foundations or philanthropies, they may not be able to give huge amount of grants, but I think it could make significant difference, even the little amount they give to the lives of women and girls who do not have any option. So it will be great to see more private foundations and philanthropies to provide climate finance to the grassroots directly without middle person or middle agencies. And um, my last recommendation is, we have heard about gender inequality. So what is needed is women and girls need to be empowered and their capacity strengthened in terms of climate finance. What do I mean by this? Yes, it's important to educate women at the community level, not only about what is climate change and how it impacts their lives, but we also need to educate them on what is climate finance? Why is it important? And what is it used for? How would it benefit them and their community? And how could they access this climate finance? And ideally, after having all this information and accessibility to information, um, there should be a one-stop center where they could go or contact to get more information and support to access or apply for this climate finance. So yeah, that's roughly some of the, my recommendations yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're all key. Um, uh, and I, I want to, to put them in a nutshell just quickly again. Um, I see I see also that women and girls are the agents of change. They have to be empowered. They have to be educated and not just in um, in in literary, literacy projects, but but also in finance and give them give them really the responsibility to to manage projects to to have a a very important role in communities and and really really enforce grassroots projects like give them the priority they deserve and they are the people the grassroots people they are the people like the people uh, living in the rural areas, for example, they are the people who, who know best which solutions are really, really needed. Um, they're not just, they just, they don't want to be um, 
any figure, but they have the solutions and they want to impl implement them as their lives are under risk. And I, I really value the point you mentioned um, to not just talk about people, but really include them in the whole process, not, not just in the end of the project or in the end of the process, what could be improved? Well, it's, it's, it's obvious that you won't feel comfortable then and you don't, don't even talk, but, but if you're included in the whole process, um, that would make a significant difference. And, and I really also liked the point that the money should be given to the communities directly, not with several stages in between with probably the risk of corruption and and the point you mentioned with giving private entities um, the priority as, as well to have funding by private and public entities i think that is a very important point and i'm well positive that there will be in the future more private entities funding such such projects as as we can can see that we are in Germany we're seeing it uh, slowly but steadily. Thank you, Hui, for talking so much about climate finance, about the interdependencies, about about the interconnectedness. It's a complex topic and I am so so happy you try to put it very into a nutshell and make a picture out of it to to explain it and I I'm very very grateful that you have taken the time talking to us and thank you very much again you're welcome and I hope more people will understand as well so that they can play their part small or big in any way they can, you know, to help to spread the news and to help women and girls who are affected, especially in global South countries. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed it, make sure to hit the bell to not miss any episode. Together, we change our world for the better.